Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Stacks, the editor and publisher of Ugly Things Magazine for the past 40 years. If you've read even one issue of Ugly Things, you know that there's one band I place above all others, the Pretty Things. Yeah, the name of the magazine is not a coincidence. My guest today is the lead guitarist, founder member, and one of the primary songwriters of that group, Dick Taylor. Dick formed The Pretty Things in 1963 with singer Phil May at Sidcup Art School. Dick had recently left the Rolling Stones so he could continue to pursue his art studies. He and Phil were joined by bass player John Fulliger, who soon afterwards changed his name to John Stacks. A brilliant idea I later stole for myself. Rhythm guitarist Brian Pendleton was the next on board, and they went through a succession of drummers before recruiting Viv Prince in 1964 when they signed to Fontana Records. That was the lineup that recorded The Pretty Thing's first two albums, along with a string of fantastic singles, including Rosalind, Don't Bring Me Down, and Honey I Need. As times changed and the band's music evolved, they went through multiple lineup changes. Dick left in 1969, but he returned in 1978, and the band continued to make valid and often amazing music, right up until Phil's death in 2020. For this episode, I thought it might be interesting to focus on just one Pretty Things album from their more than 50 years together. I asked Dick to make the selection, and without hesitation, he chose Get the Picture, their second album. We went deep, so sit back and get ready to immerse yourself in the musical world of The Pretty Things, 1965. Okay, so just to set the scene, the album was recorded in the second half of 1965, and 1965 was an eventful year in Pretty Things history, I would say. In February, you had the hit single, Honey, I Need. The first album was released in March, and soon after that, there was a riot at the Blocker Festival in the Netherlands. Then uh, Dylan came over on tour, and some of the Pretty Things were hanging out with Bob Dylan. Uh, you had the Cry to Me single, the Raining in My Heart EP, and then August through the middle of September, uh, a riotous tour of New Zealand. So a lot going on. Indeed. <laughs> the first album, I think, you know, really was a pure R&B 
or blues album, you know, with no less than four Bo Diddley songs. But by mid-65, when you started working on Get the Picture, you'd sort of broken away from that that R&B mold to some extent and was starting to experiment with some different styles. You and Phil are starting to write more songs. So, you know, what what was happening? What, what do you remember about this period? It seemed like it was a period of growth musically. Yeah, I guess so. I, I mean, we definitely thought we needed to kind of get out of the uh, strict R&B mode. Um, and also, it, you know, certainly my musical taste by that time was a lot broader and a lot of soul stuff was coming, you know, we we were hearing a lot of soul music. Um, even the first kind of hints of psychedelia um, and stuff like that. And there was a lot going on in London. And we had the opportunity to see an, an enormous amount of um, American acts coming over. We saw, oh God, Ike and Tina and uh, Innes and Charlie Fox and Wilson Pickett, and the list goes on. Um, what year did the birds, was the birds hit? Yeah, that was the same year as well. I remember, you know, we used to go to a place called Blazes Club, where I lived, I lived literally like a few hundred yards away. So I could literally get up as in midnight to six (laughs) and uh, get up and um, go off and see, you know, like I say, um, like Antina or or the birds. Um, Yeah, and it, it was an amazing time. And I think we realised, actually, that it was an amazing time because we could, you know, there was so much stuff that we could, you know, listen to and um, kind of had to influence us. Right, right. And you're living right in the heart of London, right in the centre of all, all the action, right? Kind of. I mean, we were li- I was living in West London, but there were two really essential places, one of which was Blaze's Club. And um, we had a big association, you know, the Brian Morrison agency had a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of, you know, a lot of links with that club. And then a little bit further away, I mean, you know, a 10 minute walk, we had uh, the Cromwellian Club. Yeah. Which was a, a very interesting venue, but we'll get to that later. Okay. So, you know, let's get into the album. Um, Once again, you've got Bobby Graham producing, and it was recorded at um, Fontana Phillips Studios, Stanhope Place. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the studio. What what was that like? Can we kind of set the scene with that? I mean, the studio, Stanhope Place was squeaky clean, very modern, in, uh, shall we say, an early 60s way. So, um, you know, everything was kind of up to the minute, but not really, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Um, So it it was um, very well run, great engineers, and kind of, I don't know, um, somehow us and Bobby seemed to lower the tone a little, (laughs) <laughs> but it was still a very enjoyable place to be. Yeah. And, um, you know, after we'd been there a few hours, things didn't look quite so uh, 
neat and tidy. <laughs> but they sort of let you just get on with it, right? Just left you and Bobby to just go ahead and do what you need yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah, well, as, as I'm sure Phil has told you in the past, that um, a guy called Jack Baverstock um, was the sort of A&R man and producer who, first of all, um, was going to be our producer. And I think he did one session and immediately handed over the reins to uh, Bobby Graham <laughs> because he, he just, he, yeah, you know, we were just a bit too much for him, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's get into the tracks on the album. The first song on the album is You Don't Believe Me. And, you know, for a little background on this, um, I, we know it was recorded on September 14th, 1965, because September 13th, bass player John Stacks married Wendy. And yep. uh, the session was the next day. John and Wendy had gone off on their honeymoon. So John wasn't there for the session. So, uh, you brought in um, Fred Gandy from the Fairies. Um, That's right. And as it turned out, Viv Prince, the drummer, was locked up in the cells in Bow Street because he'd got a little boisterous after the reception. So you didn't have a drummer either. But fortunately, Fred Gandy showed up with Twink, the drummer from the Fairies, and future drummer for The Pretty Thing. So it was a very sort of ad hoc version of The Pretty Things that recorded You Don't Believe Me. Yeah, you're right. And of course, with the, another small addition, which was Jimmy Page, because Jimmy had come, he'd written a song, somehow he wrote it with Phil. I don't know if it was, I really honestly don't know when they wrote it together. Um, but um, anyway, so Jimmy was there. Um, so we had a rather different version of The Pretty Things. Was Brian Pendleton there? Because uh, it's hard to tell if there's two guitars. Do you know, he may not have been. That might well be the case, yeah. I'd be lying if I said that I knew. But, um, and the other thing I'm not sure of is the, who actually played the guitar on the track, because I know there was a bit of an issue with Jimmy's uh, guitar with the tuning. Um, and I think what actually happened is I think I lent him my guitar. So he played that. Um, and did I play on it? I'm actually not sure. Is it, or is, it a, is it a 12 string guitar? It sounds like a 12 string. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is, oh, that, that's actually, I think maybe what it is. It's a 12 string plus the, um, Plus Jimmy playing my guitar or him playing my twelve string, because yes, we had the the Gibson twelve which I'd bought quite a while before because it was on yeah it was on Honey I Need right and um, it it was a very very nice guitar and we used it on quite a lot of stuff. Well, we'd actually used it even on the come to think of it on the first album, so I must have got it 
quite early on. Right. And it was my pride and joy. And which stayed with with the, the band for quite a long while until I lent it to Hawkwind. <laughs> what then, happened then? Well, apparently, Mr. Brock, the van got broken into and it disappeared and it got nicked, basically. But they did pay me for it, the full price of a Gibson 12 at that time, which was, I think, about 125 guineas. Um, and now, of course, God knows how much it would be worth, but there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that song... Uh, immediately, the first song on the album is different from anything you've done before. It's very much a folk rock song. Yeah. Um, the birds, and maybe it reminds me a little bit of the, those Jackie DeShannon songs that the Searchers did, like when you walk in the room. And of course, Jimmy was at one point seeing Jackie DeShannon, so that might have been an yeah, influence. Rubbed off on him. Yeah. Shall we say? <laughs> yes, perhaps literally, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, yeah, I think I think it's for me. It's a real uh, favorite. I mean, it's a it's a great great song. Actually, we used you know when you say about it being the the, the folk rock influence. When you think of uh, what's it called, I can never say. Oh yeah, I had the jangly twelve on it. That's true. Yeah, even I, honey, I need to some extent had that. Oh, God, yeah, honey, I need hugely. But yeah, it it still was to be the opening track on the album. Probably by accident that it was the opening track, but it seemed to be making a statement that this isn't the R&B roadrunner pretty things. On the same day, we did... Let's play house, didn't we? Yes, we'll play house. We've recorded the same lineup. Yeah. And again, not clear whether there's two guitars or one. Um, and this one you worked up right there in the studio. Yeah. And that one, I know that I actually used. Jimmy Page's and Electro. Okay. We'd had a sort of bit of a guitar swap, I think. And um, what was the inspiration for that song? Um, oh, bloody hell, what's it called? <laughs> the, the Dale Hawkins song? Hawkins, yeah, yeah, Dale Hawkins. Um, Susie Q. Yeah, because I'd, I'd loved Susie Q for a long, long time. Um, and I just wanted something with that rhythm. Right. And, so, uh, yeah, the same kind of drum pattern, too. The, particularly the drum pattern, yeah. And as for the lyrics, um, it sounds almost improvised. Were, you, were they improvised right there, do you think? Or? Almost improvised, totally improvised. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody had any um, input into the lyrics apart from Phil's brain. I don't know if that was the first, I don't know, maybe we we probably worked on it a little bit, but... Um, yeah, maybe a my... title. <laughs> yeah. There's a lyric where he says, uh, I've never been without a girl before. 
you're the first girl I've ever known. <laughs> they don't know what the logic of that is. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, n- another great song. And, and that one's credited to you and Phil and um, Twink and Fred Gandy. So four musicians yeah. playing on it, I'm assuming, which is why I think maybe Brian Pendleton wasn't there. Yeah. A lineup that lasted for just a few hours, but a yes, good one. Exactly. Of course, prior to that, Bobby had played on, um, he, he he definitely played on Honey I Need, yeah. Um, principally because either Pib was asleep, which <laughs> did happen a couple of times, or I think he might have actually just said, "Oh, Pib, do you mind if I play on this one?" Um, um, Pib and him did get on very well, and they t- you know they talked drums and what have you. Um, so there's no sort of uh, oh. We got a session drummer on this one. It was just like, you might, you know, let's see what, see if I can do this one sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Jimmy Page thing is funny because several times I've been, I've been told that of course I didn't play on any of the pretty things albums. <laughs> and that Jimmy Page did it all. Well, he must have done it by telepathy because that was the only day he was there. Yeah, and if he was doing it, he plays exactly like you. Which is a bit weird. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he'd seen us play quite a bit anyway. Yeah. Yeah, obviously he he was a fan of the band because he later signed the Pretty Things to to his own label. Yeah, he he always did, I believe. And, you know, it it was nice having him there as well. It was a kind of... It was a... It was a day I can actually, although I can't, you know, lay my hand on my heart and say, "Oh yeah, this, yeah." He played the guitar on on um, on you know on that particular track, but I can definitely say that we had a nice day. Um, <laughs> so Twink definitely remembered that Jimmy was banging a tambourine on the floor for "You Don't Believe Me." And if you listen to that tambourine, it's very, you know, aggressive in that it sounds like someone banging a tambourine on a floor. So I'm inclined to believe what Twink yeah, said. I think he's right. I do think he's right. Which again gives me pause the thought thinking, hang on, did I eventually play the guitar? I don't know. I don't know. I think That's it's you. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, track two on the album, uh, classic Buzz the Jerk. Yeah. Well, we'd done Get A Buzz, and we needed another track. <laughs> and the jerk was a kind of current dance uh, craze. I guess it wasn't current, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know if we ever actually saw anybody do the jerk. <laughs> I, I could do it for you right now, but I might bang the microphone by mistake. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, obviously here you were talking about the soul influence and here's a yeah. new song that's got a, 
it doesn't sound like a copy of soul music but it's definitely got a sort of papa's got a brand new bag kind of groove well yeah i mean you could say that yeah and obviously yeah sorry i don't know how many how many takes that took i don't think a huge number to be honest it's a great um bass and drum groove especially oh god isn't it just isn't it just it's just yeah when i you know had a re-listen to it i was just like awestruck by the bass and drums to be honest yeah somebody should sample that and turn it into a new hit you know it's so tired and that definitely is mr stacks yeah that's him all right The next track is the title track, Get the Picture. So tell me about the origins of that. It was just, you know, Get the Picture. We had two uh, guys who were our tour manager. Call him a, call them tour managers, not just drivers, not roadies, but definitely, um, yeah, tour managers, one of whom was Philip Alexander Andropoulos, commonly known as Phil the Greek. Andropolis, I think that's right. Not the Phil the Greek who occupied a house up the road from us for a while. <laughs> well, we occupied a road up a house up the road from him for a while. Oh yeah. But no, Phil the Greek <laughs> and Pete Watson, both kind of uh, a little bit Jack the Laddie, a little bit Moddy, and a, a very very common phrase in those days was, "All right, get a picture." You know, it was very much, yeah. you know, I tell you, I'm telling you, get the picture, <laughs> you know, and it just became part of, just part of our kind of jokey vocabulary, you know, blah, 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 get the picture, you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so it just seemed natural to write a song around it. I don't want to that was um, one of the early collaborations of you and Phil. Do you recall where you were when you wrote that? No bloody idea. <laughs> um, you know, we did get to get together. It might have been around my flat, actually. It could have been, possibly. Or it might, believe it or not, actually have been in the studio. I know that seems, you know, it, it seems a bit a bit less of a sort of slung together song than, for instance, Buzz the Jerk. It's a yeah, very well-structured, organised song. Yeah. It sounds like it could have been a single, a, you know, in contention to yeah. be a single. But yeah, I think it was intended to be a single. Um, and I think Bobby had a lot to do with the actual arrangement of it. Although, I mean, when, when we say arrangement, it's just kind of, you know, first chorus and guitar solo and what have you. But it does sound like a, no offence to the other things, but a proper song. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it has connecting parts with the drum stops and starts and drum fills that are very yeah. specifically yeah. written. Yes, yeah, very much so. But I, I do think an, an enormous amount of that was actually um, put together in the studio. Very much so, you know. And we had this basic structure, and then we, the whole band, worked on it, and particularly and with very much Bobby's Bobby Graham's influence. Right. Yeah. Great song, and and an obvious great title for the album you know if you're gonna yeah, pick a song yeah, yeah. that's it for my money for my soul i feel lost out of control let's move on to one of my all-time favorite pretty thing songs in fact one of my favorite songs by anybody ever and it's can't stand the pain there's nothing quite like this song. It's so, it's like, to me, I think it's kind of a forerunner of psychedelia. You know, it's got this dreamy quality to it. And I think, I, as I told you before in the past, the first time I heard it, when I was maybe 12 or 13 years old, that I had the strongest sense of deja vu that I've ever experienced. Like, it's something that I heard in a dream, like a soundtrack to a dream I'd had. Maybe you, it, maybe you sent it over to me. <laughs> <laughs> it really it still kind of spooks me out to this day you know that was it's somewhere in my dna that song yes again guess where most of it was written or some of it was written. I, I sort of concocted for some reason the little minor dong, ding, 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 ding bit. Um, maybe the night before or a couple of days before. And with some of the rest of it, and I remember distinctly sitting there and trying to put together a suitable run of chords which weren't completely hackneyed mm -hmm. um yeah and just sort of like oh, will that will that work well you know um without it being without it sounding like anything else so maybe i obviously kind of to a certain degree got it right and then when it came to the lyrics uh that was again one of phil's you know extemporizing moments where he largely largely made it up on the spot yeah we may have got together the night before or something like that but um certainly i had actually i know i'd done the as i say the little minor bit first and then it gradually came together and th the piano on it is bobby graham i'm uh -huh. absolutely sure it's not nicky hopkins yeah um I'm really pretty sure it was Bobby, and he was really just going, tick -tick -tick, you know, hammering away on the top of the piano. Oh, yeah, um, it's very basic, but that's all it needed. Yeah, that is absolutely all it needed. Yeah, and I was always incredibly fond of that song. You're, you're dead right. But for reasons best known uh, to Phil, unfortunately, he, he never wanted to do it on stage. So we never did. 
which I think was a real shame. Yeah, we'll have to rectify that at some point. Yeah, yeah, somehow. absolutely. Do you fancy um, doing a gig sometime? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's do that. And there's a slide guitar on there as well as, obviously, the lead is you. So is the slide Brian Pendleton or is it no, overdubs? That, that is definitely me. It was an overdub. All right, I'm yeah. Sure. I, I've thought about it and I thought we were talking about it before at our, at our failed blog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah just just so everybody knows we we did a it must have been about an hour and a half chat and it was so easy to do and we were rabbiting away to one another and then apparently the sound quality wasn't wasn't good enough so here we are doing it again and i'm saying totally different things i'm sure but there you go but you've had time to rethink some of these things and now can can confirm which guitar parts are you on that song, which is great. I'm I'm really am pretty sure I did the did the slide. And unfortunately Brian's not around to contradict me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm really pretty sure I'm very sure I did the slide. Well he's probably doing that rhythm part under the solo. Um so yes. yeah. He's in the mix there. There's claves, right? Those wood blocks. Yeah. Who did that? Bobby again. No, Viv, I think. Yeah. I think that was Viv. Yeah, I can picture him banging yeah. those together very nicely yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to, to me, it has, you know, you and Phil having that art school background. This feels like a an art piece. It really is <laughs> more of an art song than a rock and roll song. You know, it's, it seems like a, yeah, I don't know. That's just my feeling. Yeah, I think, well, I think both by that time, well, for quite a while before, I mean, Phil, Phil and both Phil and myself, our taste in music was a lot broader than particularly the first album might, might indicate because like when we were at art school, we had people, it was, it was a really cool thing because um, every lunchtime people would bring in tracks to, you know, bring in, singles or albums and uh people liked all sorts of music so we'd have one guy a guy called dave chaston who was very knowledgeable about modern jazz and he'd bring in um monk at town hall um you know charlie mingus records and all sorts and um i'd always really really liked like jazz of any sort um and I found the the kind of culture wars between the um, modern jazz and the trad jazz people absolutely ludicrous. Um, yeah. Because it's all it was all jazz, you know. It was all kind of part of the same, you know. And you just li listen to Mingus, and you know, he is versed in everything from the twenties onwards. So anyway, and and we'd have another guy who'd come in and bring. Um, Joey D and Starlighter, Starlighters, and you know, and then obviously we were, you know, there was Smokestack Lightning and um, Woody Guthrie and kind of every every genre. Right, I think right. even a couple of classical records at some point, but yeah. um, which was great, and um, we were, yeah, we were we were very much into it, all of it. 
you know, and the fact is we played the R&B stuff because we loved it. And also it was the most accessible for us to play. It was very much that. And it, it really sort of spoke to us as well. So, um, yeah, and maybe that's kind of like what you were saying about it being a bit art schooly. Yeah, because you're painting a mood, you're painting a picture with that song, you're creating an atmosphere, you're creating a whole world, really. Um, you know, not to get too pretentious about it, but it, it is, you know, it's a whole world there in a way. Really, it's uh, kind of just a little thing. I went, oh, oh yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that was the beginnings of what you would do later with SF Sorrow and so on. Yeah, I think you, you know. I think you were right. You know, and our horizons were were broadening in the sense that we thought we could do more. You know, I think I, I, certainly my horizon was, you know, when it came to listening to music was pretty broad by that time anyway. By that yeah. time, I, I'd most definitely got a Love Supreme, um, which was absolutely, you know, uh, every every note I knew uh, it, by heart. Not that <laughs> that sounds like I could, I could actually, could, you know, play something. Absolutely not. But you know <laughs> what I mean? I, it was it was so much in my head. Yeah. Um, and um, Otis Blue and everything—it was all—it was all kind of rattling around in our brains. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the reasons that this album is special. It's got all those eclectic influences, even though you know you, it's obviously not a John Coltrane influence that you could hear. <laughs> but maybe just the fact that you know Love Supreme is opening up pathways in your mind as far as you know trying different chord sequences and. Um, yeah, yeah. Just different different moods and, and just, yeah, experimenting with structure and things like that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Subconsciously, you know. <laughs> subconsciously. No, I mean, that, that's what we're listening to. And, and, you know, none of us, unfortunately, none of us were like trained musicians in any way at all, you know, not that I know of. Um, Probably the the most uh, professional, of course, was Viv, um, right. in in his in his abilities, <laughs> not in, in his, his behaviour, <laughs> not in his behaviour. No, not not in the least. I mean, he was getting a bit out there by that time. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. I think a little further on. Let's move on to the next song, and a, a big contrast again, Raining in My Heart, which had already been on an EP earlier that year, so obviously this had been recorded sometime earlier. Um, but Slim Harpo, and again, you know, one of the pretty things, you know, most well-known songs, you know, everyone associates you with this song. Yeah, particularly in Holland and Germany, yeah. for some reason. Um, yeah, and it's such a really really good song you know and it suited phil's voice absolutely to a t yeah so i think that that was the whole thing about it and it hadn't been you know, I, I think you're right it'd been on an ep hadn't it but it hadn't it wasn't on an album right and 
I think it was, it had sold quite a lot in the EP form. Yeah, um, yeah, that was a good seller. It just needed to get, on, get itself on an album. And as for the recording of that, well, that was some time before. Same lineup in Stanhope Place, Bobby Graham. Um, Brian was really on it and doing his really good rhythm and everything. Um, yeah. It just worked. Great um, tremolo sound on that guitar as well. Ooh. Yeah. You know, Brian had a, a Selma, and I was always sort of, oh, Selma's not not as good as a Vox. And now I listen to Selma's. I've got a friend who's got more Selma's than uh, most people have spoons, and they're just brilliant. They're just, and the tremolo on them is yeah. just fantastic. Yeah. Our, our guitar, one of our guitar players, Mark, he is worship selma he has several the tremolo is the best i think oh it is it, yeah they're just such good amps and apparently um the marshall circuit is apparently very similar so i've been told by people who know about these things yeah but they certainly sounded really really good and these days if i was given a choice between you know a vox 30 even from those days and a selma i would absolutely plump for the Selma. In fact, I have one, two, three. Yeah, yeah. three Selmas myself. This episode of the Ugly Things podcast sponsored by Selma Amplifiers. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> <laughs> And on Rated in My Heart, that's um, that's John Stacks playing harmonica, correct? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, very nice. And when we used to play on stage, I think then Brian would get on the bass and John would play harp, I believe. Yeah, I've seen pictures with Brian's playing bass. I know that happened, I think, on Roadrunner too. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And there was one song, I th- oh, it was, um, it was Hey Mama. And again, Brian would be playing bass and we'd go off onto complete tangents. Um, and then Viv had this habit of getting off the drums um, and he'd start drumming on the stage. And then he'd go up to Brian and start playing on the bass and try to actually drum on Brian's fingers. His fingers kind of try to get out the way of Viv. song on the side we've already talked about we'll play house so we'll flip the album over all oh, right and the first song on uh, side two is you'll never do it baby which was written by two guys from the band cops and robbers brian smudger smith and terry fox did, 
Do you remember how you ended up recording that song? Did you know Cops and Robbers? We knew, I think they, they were... I don't know if they were part of the Brian Morrison agency, or they used to certainly pop up at the agency when I think about it. Yeah. Um, how did we hear the song? I think they literally must have brought a demo along or something. Or did they record it prior to us? I know they recorded it, but uh, I don't know whose version came first. Yeah, they may have recorded it yeah, before us, and we just liked the song. And again, I think uh, Bobby thought it was a good idea to do it, quite rightly. Drums figure a lot into that song. It's kind of almost a showcase for the drums. Yeah. And is that Viv or, or Bobby playing? Probably Viv. I think it's Viv. I do think it's Viv. When I think about what the the fills are, they're very Viv fills. It was very hard to tell, quite honestly. Yeah. Okay. But having said that, Bobby was quite capable of uh, of doing th similar stuff. But I'm pretty sure it is Viv. And again, I don't think that's a song you ever performed live. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> It was, again, censored for reasons I don't know. <laughs> well, I suppose, yeah, I guess it wasn't one of yours, so maybe that's why. It but... wasn't, yeah, I mean, that did make a difference. By that time, we'd actually cottoned on to the fact of, about PRS and the fact that you could actually, you know, fill a little form in and maybe get a few pennies for something you played live. Um, but having said that, I don't think it's entirely that. Um Another stupid reason is probably because, apart from playing it on the album, we never really re rehearsed it to play live. So we kind yeah. of knocked it out and not, not actually, you know, done our homework to to rehearse it. But we'll also, Phil had a habit of sort of um, kind of deciding what things he would like to do. And sometimes I can't say I was in total agreement with, you know, everything he said, oh, that we we should do. Um, it's almost like just by omission, we we just didn't write it into the set list. Yeah. Um, and it just got, yeah, never done. Right. And, and by a few months later, you would have moved on to something else anyway. Yeah, exactly. So... Um the next song on the album, very nice cover of Ray Charles, I Had a Dream. Yep. Tell me about why you decided to do this song. Well, we'd had that Ray Charles album for a long time. I know I had. Um, I eventually got it because um, originally, I think that was the album I ordered um, from the local record shop and was absolutely delighted when it turned up until I opened the sleeve and discovered there was a Val Doonigan or something in it rather than the Ray Charles album. <laughs> eventually, I, I managed to get hold of it anyway and that, there was that and there was... Blackjack on it, and oh, um, oh god, it was a really amazing album. All night and day. Oh yeah, yeah. I had a dream was well, it's just such a good song, and somehow we just got round to the idea of hey let's let's have a go at it. 
And you did very much your own arrangement that doesn't sound like Ray Charles. No. <laughs> Yeah, slide guitar and, uh, you know, it's obviously Phil doesn't sing it like Ray Charles, but it has a nice bluesy feel. Yeah, well, it is strictly a blues, isn't it, really? Yeah. You know, it really is. Um, I was never sure about, you know, when I did the slide, I was, does that really work? But um, again, Bobby said, no, no, that's fine. So I thought, oh, I shall... um, I shall accept his judgment. Yeah, he was right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's someone playing piano on there too. Um, that may actually, that might, that might be Nicky Hopkins. I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah, I think it might well be. Right. Yeah, the background voices, the background yeah. voices. That's going to be, I think Leslie Duncan is part definitely, of that. Definitely, definitely. I think it was Les. Leslie, hmm. Probably John Stacks and maybe Pendleton. Ian Sterling sang sometimes some background too, your friend Ian. Yes, he did, yeah. And Ian Ian had the potential to be a really good singer, but he he didn't have too much discipline when it came to, um, you know, doing a harmony or anything like that. Right. But it might be him. So, I mean, I know you'd known him since uh, Sidcup Art School. I mean, what, what, yeah, yeah. what, what yeah. did he do? What did he do? I mean, what was, I, I know he was your flatmate for a while. Did he have a job? <laughs> did, did anybody have a job? <laughs> a real job? <laughs> so I'll tell you what he finished up doing, funnily enough, with his, uh, with his wife, uh, Margaret, who was his girlfriend at the time, who finished up, um, running a thing called Downtown Darkroom, which was a, a photo processing lab. And they did, you know, David Bailey and stuff like that. Oh, wow. um, but at the time, at the time he he was, uh, when we were sharing a flat, we were just hanging around. I don't know where he, uh, I know for a while he worked doing scaffolding. Um, in fact, when we went to New Zealand, I came back. Him and uh, him, Pete Watts, we, 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 the three of us were sharing this flat. And I came back, and in the uh, in the back bedroom, there was this giant jumble of lead. <laughs> <laughs> when they'd been working on a job, I can say this now, they're, they're safe. There isn't a statute of limitations in England, but unfortunately both them and Pete are dead. Um, and anyway, there was this great big pile of lead, which Julie went off to the East End, um, possibly to some notorious villains who might even have been brothers, um, twins. Uh, anyway... And they'd gone back to one of the jobs they were working on when we were in, in New Zealand, and uh, yeah, and then while it was still there, I remember Skip coming into. Oh, that's the point. Well, what was Skip doing there? That is a very good point. Oh, of course, because Skip that after we came back from New Zealand, Viv got left there, and I think that's when we met up with Skip. Okay. Yeah. And he was very young, and he came into into my flat, and he says, 
there seems to be a tree in the back room because <laughs> it was it looked like a sort of surrealist tree this because it was all all these you know lengths of pipe and everything so, <laughs> so yeah yeah it's this uh art art project that, that we're doing <laughs> and probably shut the door on it <laughs> <laughs> great story <laughs> Let's talk about the next song, which is I Want Your Love, written or co-written by the notorious Johnny D. Oh, yes, of course. And uh, so Johnny D had written, of course, uh, Don't Bring Me Down, your second single, and he'd written Get Yourself Home, which you recorded but didn't release. So this was yeah. the third song he'd written for you. But let's talk about him, Johnny D. He's a bit of a legend, a bit of a mystery, a bit of an enigma. Hmm. Yeah. I never, uh, I always thought, well, I had the impression that it, that the truth was a, a bit of a stranger to him about various things. Although some of the stuff he came out with maybe was true, you know, um, maybe. He was, you know, the world's best bullshitter, basically. Um, <laughs> and also when, when we recorded, um, when we recorded Don't Bring Me Down, and we went to Sheffield. Was it Sheffield or Bradford? One of the two, either at the Mojo Club in Sheffield or the Little Black Pussycat Club in Little Black Cat Club in Bradford. And it came over the radio. We were in the top ten. And Johnny D was ecstatic and celebrating. And we were driving in his big open top American car and I was cowering in the back absolutely convinced I was not going to last the night out that we, we were all going to die but um, we did survive <laughs> now was he American or was he British there was some dispute about that I think actually to be honest I think he was half and half and he did tell me that he was part Native American, which I think, on reflection, although in the time of that, nah, you're, you're bullshitting me, but I think he possibly was. Um, and he was kind of, you know, he was actually fun to be around, but always felt slightly on edge with him for some reason. <laughs> Another, yeah, off-the-rails person. Um, yeah, seem to be seem to gravitate towards the pretty things. Yeah, I don't know why. God knows why. We were, Phil and I were very, very, you know, quite sensible people. <laughs> yeah, it might have been the music. You know, it was. They definitely yeah, had think, an anarchic edge. You know. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yep. But um, no, Johnny Johnny D was kind of around. Um, you know, Denmark Street and everything. Um, as were a lot of people, and it was kind. Of, he was on the sort of PJ Proby, uh, 
one of one of that one of PJ Proby's yeah, cohorts. Or Vince Taylor, one of those type of yeah. pretty much, yeah. Um, who Viv, of course, was quite friendly with PJ Proby and and Vince Taylor, and uh, a, a rather strange character called Bongo Wolf. Right. Yes, I'm familiar with Bongo Wolf. Oh, do you, oh, really? Yeah, well, I, I'm familiar with... In fact, I just interviewed PJ Proby, so... Oh, really? He always mentions Bongo Wolf, and he was telling me that Viv was actually... He described Viv as his cook. Viv was a really good cook. Was he, yeah. really? Oh, yeah. He, he always used to um, make what he called dynamic gravy. And it was, it was really very dynamic. No, it was really, no, he was a very, an excellent cook. Um, amazingly, considering he was, you know, consuming yeah. a bottle of scotch a day or more. But yeah, yeah no, he always, he did it. When we were at Chester Street, he did our roast dinners and very good they were. With dynamic gravy. What was, what was dynamic, dynamic gravy? I don't know. It's just dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. Th I'm thinking maybe whiskey might have been one of the ingredients. It could well have been. <laughs> maybe a bit of hash. <laughs> I know we went to France, and um, we went to France, and someone amongst us brought so much dope that it, that it had to be cooked with. <laughs> <laughs> you had a surplus <laughs> definitely did <laughs> now going back to I Want Your Love what do you remember was this jo right. this Johnny just uh, wanting to get another you know hopefully trying to get another hit with the pretty things yeah. oh yeah absolutely and it was a very good song you know it was kind of in the same yet again in the same ilk as Don't Bring Me Down and Get Yourself Home but but it was really, yeah. Yeah. He, he did a good job. Who else was credited with it, as a matter of interest? Somebody called Jack Tarr. Um, <laughs> no idea. Sounds like a made-up name. Sounds it like does, a, doesn't sound it? like a villain in a Dickens book or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jack Tarr, yeah. I wonder if he was jolly. <laughs> <laughs> jolly Jack Tarr. Yeah. But again, that's a song that sort of, you re recorded it, never did it again, ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It got uh, cast aside. Yeah, I, th I think fact, I... How many, how many I, songs on this album did we ever actually perform? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember well, trying to talk to Phil about that song. I, I don't think he had any recollection of it at all. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, he just didn't, it didn't seem to ring a bell with him at all. Yeah. To, to kick off the guitar solo, you know, Phil was always good at these sort of ad libs, but this one he says, Saints preserve me. I just got to love you. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Where did that come from? Saints preserve me. Uh, okay. <laughs> For that alone, I thought he would remember it, but no. Yeah, it's blank. Yeah. And I think I mentioned this on our first attempt at this podcast, but, um, David Bowie, in fact, recorded a demo of this same song right around the same time. Oh, right. With uh, when he was the lower third, I believe, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we which, still used to see him around, definitely. 
Yeah. I could just sort of picture Johnny D going to Bowie and saying, well, the pretty yeah. things are interested in this, but maybe you'd like it. And Bowie would be, yeah, yeah. yeah let me do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd like to hear it by him. Yeah. And uh, we're not sure. Apparently, Johnny D is supposedly deceased, but uh, you said you heard otherwise. Well, yes. Um, about two years ago. No, probably look, probably just pre-lockdown. Um, there was one guy who was absolutely obsessed with, as he always called him, John Christian D. He, yeah. he always called him, that's, he always referred to him by his whole name. Um, and he was, for some reason, he, he, he found him intriguing. Uh, but he wasn't the one who told me that, oh, I was in London and there was a band and there was a guy fronting it or something who said he was John John D, John Christian D. Um, I, I had thought he was dead. Um, and I think he, who knows? It just seems so weird. Of all the people who you would, who you would, whose personality, you know, whose persona you would take on, John D. Why would anybody do that? <laughs> yeah, you'd only be attracting trouble. I mean, he. I, th I think after he was involved with Pretty Things, he went to Germany for a while, and he had. Yeah. He became a recording artist in his own right, and he also had a thing sort of a german version of sunny and share called adam and eve yes that's right yeah and there was a couple of different eves and then uh and then he was involved in uh, he was involved in prostitution uh he was and uh, uh and ended up stabbing one of his women possibly killed her i know he went to prison in i Germany. think he did i know he went to jail for quite a time yeah did hear that he did something similar again, but that again, who knows? Um, and I think on Wikipedia, he's he's been killed off on Wikipedia. So he he may he that. may have killed himself off to uh, yeah, take it on done, a new yeah. guise, you know? Yeah, maybe. Sure, that's your 
Moving on to the next song on the album, another favourite, um, London Town. So this is based on a traditional folk song, Green Rocky Road, which is done by yeah. a lot of people. Dave, Dave Von Ronk did a really good version. Tim Harden did a version. But this version credited to somebody called Mike Taylor. And speaking of pe confusion, because people see Taylor as the songwriting credit, they yep. assume it's you. It ain't me. It's definitely not me. No, so how, how did you get the song? He came into Brian Morrison's office, offered us the song, um, or offered Brian the song, who said, oh, I think you should do this. Um, um, shall we say it was an unusual um, um, intrusion into our artistic uh, output by Brian. <laughs> Mostly wasn't really interested. Well, he didn't seem that interested in what we did. I mean, he enjoyed, enjoyed gigs and everything, but um, that was about the extent of it. But anyway, he, he suggested that we do it. And we did. <laughs> um, I think we met Mike Taylor once. I, I can pretty much remember meeting this slim American guy. Had the song, had recorded it, I believe. Um, we must have had a demo of some sort of it. And um, we kind of liked it. Yeah. So, uh, so we did it. You know, that's kind of, uh, that's about the whole strength of it, really. And musically, it's another departure. It's an, it, well, it's another example of the pretty thing sort of folk rock style. Yeah, yeah. There's that, there's that Gibson twelve string. Yeah, acoustic. absolutely. Yeah, and also, but there's also this lovely flowing lyrical lead guitar all the way through it. So who's? That's obviously you. So yeah, Brian, and it's Brian I playing the twelve string. I think it's Brian playing the twelve. Yeah, and somebody on bongos. That's Viv. I'm Viv. pretty sure that is Viv, yeah. Right. Yes. In fact, yeah, I'm very sure it's Viv. And, um, I mean, Brian was such a good rhythm guitarist when you when yeah. I listen back. It was absolutely spot on. Yeah, he was very precise, wasn't he? He was not yeah. sloppy at all. No, unlike the rest of us. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, this is a um, an early example of just how good Phil was as, as a singer. Because this song has a more range, uh, different mood, um, and he really just does it. He sings it so beautifully. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, he he was so good at not belting songs out. You know, he um, obviously he you know. Part of the deal with the pretty things was Phil in, you know, hyped up mode. But right. having said that, you know, I, I I always so often have said to him and um, Mark, Mark St. John, has always said, you know, use your proper, you know, your your range and you know don't don't push things so much because you've got such a good voice. Yeah, and when I think of some of the stuff he did on emotions, yeah, incredible. Yeah, he was so good at you know, it, 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 he actually had such an, an ability. Even even then, um, I don't think he he knew 
I really don't think he knew that he had this capability of being a such a, a really um, sophisticated singer. Yeah, it was very it just seemed to come naturally to him because obviously he didn't get voice lessons that, I, as far as I ever know, no, absolutely not. And um, he was not the kind of guy, <laughs> knowing Phil, that worked on things really a lot. You know, other than no. other than his drawings, uh, but. As far as anything else, it was all very done in a very sort of laid back. Well, he he he, he was very much into um, spontaneous um, creation. You know, he he thought if it didn't come naturally, um, it wasn't authentic. It wasn't. You know, mm-hmm. he really valued the the the, the sense of. Yes, of, of not, you know, being schooled and and shoved, you know, and pointed in a particular direction. He he liked just doing stuff which came very naturally to him. Yeah, yeah. The the um, feel on this song is just so good, and it's yeah. a real a real highlight of your catalogue. And, and needless to say, probably becoming repetitious. I don't think you ever played this song live. <laughs> Most definitely not. Um, and the other thing about Phil was he loved um, people like Julie London, June Christie. He oh, loved that. He loved female, you know, jazz vocalists, um, particularly, you know, sort of, you know, torch singer type. Oh, you yeah. know, which when when you think of how he how he could approach songs, he, he you know he, that's that's where the influence comes from. Yeah, that's a great point. Very uh, understated and kind of smoky and yeah, just yeah, effortless. Yeah, like Julie London. When your baby's leaves you all alone, and nobody calls you on the phone, don't you feel like crying? So yeah, Cry To Me had already been a single back in June, um, you know, six months before the album was released. And um, obviously it's the Solomon Burke song and great version. Um, Who chose it? Guilty. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I had the album and we saw Solomon Burke at the Cromwellian Club and he was amazing. I, I could absolutely remember the, the whole evening particularly the aftermath of the evening when we came out of the club and got in a, I tried to tried to get in our car and uh, it was Pete Watts who was driving and Twink was there and John Stack and um, Pete's going I can't I can't get the key in it doesn't I can't open the door and suddenly three thugs thugs no, not the fucks. <laughs> Three villains turned up. Um, what the fuck are you doing with our motor? And um, <laughs> wrong car. Oh yeah, we looked round and there was our car behind. And it, they took some convincing. And Twink, uh, with with all his usual courage and uh, yeah, what have you, lay down on the floor. And this guy said to him. Get up! I want to knock you down. 
It's not, not a bad strategy when you think about it. No, no. <laughs> as long as they, as long as they don't stomp you to death. Yeah, well, that could have been uh, on the cards, but when they realised that we actually were totally genuine, they actually said, oh, "It's all right, mate." You know, spared your lives. Yeah. Again, yes. But um, no, I, I mean, I had the Solomon Burke album with that on for some time before. And I just thought, again, it's actually a 12-bar blues, if you think about it, with the middle eight. Yeah. it Just about, anyway. Yeah. And it's a really good song. And again, I thought oh, Phil could actually do this really well, which he did, I believe. He did, yeah. And the song was actually, uh, the single actually did quite well in certain countries, didn't it? Yeah, apparently it was number one in, a, I'm not sure, some a, a country in Africa, <laughs> so, uh, which I can't name. <laughs> I can't remember where it was. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, again, obviously we had to put our own slant on it. Yeah, and there's the sort of uh, quite distorted guitar in the middle a bit and what have you. Right, right. And... Um, yeah, again, another one. Yes, no, we did do. We did actually. We did do um, Cry To Me quite a lot. Not at the time, later. Later, we, we kind of reincorporated it. And again, on the record, you've got that backing vocal chorus of Sax Pendleton, Leslie Duncan and Ian Sterling, I believe. Yeah, that definitely is Ian on that one. Yeah, most definitely. And of course, it... What happened was it got recorded by the Stones um, very soon, well, almost simultaneously. Yeah. So we both yeah. must have realised, hey, this is a, this is something we could do. They actually um, do the um, the Betty Harris version. Yes. Which, which is very different, to, um, and I think not as good. But I'm glad the vo- that your version and the Stones version are so different. Yeah, yeah, me too, because, yeah, obviously we are not copying them, and why would we? Exactly. Um, and, I mean, I genuinely, it was absolutely, you know, it was Solomon Burke, and that whole album was amazing, but that certainly stood out for me. And it yeah. was a single for him, wasn't it, I believe? I think so, yeah. I think it was, yeah. And it's, again, another one that Phil makes it seem like it's written for him. I mean, yeah, nothing exactly. nothing, could be, nothing could be sadder than a glass of wine alone. I mean, that's all could be. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that could have been on a T-shirt for Phil. You know? <laughs> I really, I must say, I, I always love that song anyway. So I'm glad we did it. And yeah. uh, then we come to... Gonna Find Me a Substitute. I can Tina Turner. Yeah. Which I got on a, on an EP a long, long time before. I know I got prior, I'm sure it prior to the pretty things. I got um it's gonna work out fine. Oh, which yeah. I found I think I found in Dobell's record shop, in jazz record shop, out on the in the remainder bin outside and paid next to nothing for it. And then uh, I think Substitute was on a, on an EP. Yeah. 
and again, for some reason I thought, well, let's try it. And Phil was quite happy to as well, so there you go. Yeah, you realise when you hear that song how his voice and Tina Turner's really aren't, they're not the same, but they're kind of in the similar kind of range, you know, the way he pushes, you know, the way he screams is a little bit how Tina did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, very much so. Yeah, and you, when you see live, Phil live, he has the kind of same kind of energy, doesn't he? Yeah. Not the same dancing. <laughs> We have to talk about John Stax's bass sound on that track. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's monstrous. It's, Again, yeah. This yes. was like a heavy bass before heavy rock and heavy bass was a thing. Here's this yeah, overdriven, right. huge bass that's sort of lumbering, you know, in the foreground, really. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Very much so. And before Come See Me. Yeah. And he's doing all these slides and swoops they yeah really going yeah. for it and the thing is he I, I think he he never really sort of saw himself as a great bass player but he actually was yeah you know and him and viv kind of really locked him together so well yeah i agree um, but yes and in fact there's about two or three tracks on that album when i re-listened to it and i just went Blimey, the bass is phenomenal and yeah. huge sounding. I think, again, it's a combination of John's playing and Bobby really cranking it up and, you know, um, getting a very, very good sound out of the bass. Yeah, I think maybe Bobby being a drummer himself, he was probably very conscious of recording the drums and the bass very well, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Absolutely. More so than a lot of producers would be. Yeah, yeah, because you'd always say, oh, you know, get the bass drum and the, and the bass locked in together. Um, it was very important to him. Yeah, well, yes, he was, uh, the rhythm section was, well, where are you without a good rhythm section? Yeah, exactly. There's not many good bands with a bad rhythm section. There may not be any. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from folk duos. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But yeah, not rock and roll or soul or R&B bands. No, no, exactly. And uh, Gotta Find Me a Substitute is very similar to Get a Buzz. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. It's almost like Get A Buzz was sort of based on, on that, on that basic, uh, you know. Actually, actually, I, I hate to say it, but you're dead right. <laughs> you are right. Because of the riff on Substitute, yeah, the guitar riff on that. Yeah. It may have well have influenced me on Get A Buzz. <laughs> right. I don't care what 
So, you know, let's talk about what happens after the album, before the album is even out, but after it's completed, you know, Viv is getting more and more of a liability. I mean, you said, you know, obviously in New Zealand, he was out of control with his, you know, dead crayfish on a string and setting the fires on stage and so on. And then when he got back, he was in October, he was in Denmark, he was beaten up by the brother of the heavyweight boxing champion, Ingmar yeah. Johansson, um, beaten up extremely badly, which made headlines. And also made an album cover later on. <laughs> yes, it was exploited later. <laughs> but um, these, there was more and more incidents like these. And then I think it was in November when the final, the final incident happened where it was just time to pull the plug on Viv. Do you remember yeah. that? I I remember it pretty well, I think. Um, as usual, my memory of things is slightly different from uh, from Phil's. But um, what I remember is playing... Now, I thought we were at the Twisted Wheel, and Phil thought we were in at a Stockport. Right. Anyway, where exactly it was, it's not that important. But what happened was um, Viv basically refused to play because he said that he wasn't admitted to the pub across the road. He was barred from going in when um, a lot of the crowd from, from, from the gig had been in the pub. and said, why should I play for them when they won't let me in the place they've been drinking? Uh, and he just sat there on the curb, wouldn't play. Um, and eventually, I think we sent him home and we got the drummer out of Hedgehog's Anonymous to play. Um, subsequently, we found out the real reason. The real reason Viv was not allowed in the pub was because the, 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 at the back of the pub was a hotel. And he'd been there with the Kinks the night before and um, things got rather out of hand. Um, with him as a, you know one of the main protagonists, with I don't know what went on, but something went on, and some damage was done, and that's <laughs> why they wouldn't let him into the pub. And he just didn't realise it was the same place he'd wrecked the night before, or you know got up to whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was the strength of it. But by that time, we were starting to, you know, the the, the, the incidents were coming thicker and faster and um we'd had the gas gun incident in scotland which was quite interesting (laughs) tell us about the gas gun incident okay right we played it it played somewhere in scotland staying in a big big old hotel and viv had sort of stayed out after the gig and we looked out in the car park and he's talking to uh He's talking to a guy out in the car park and being very friendly by the look of it. And then suddenly he pulls that we we'd been in we'd been in Hamburg and in Hamburg you could buy these gas guns which shot tear gas. Um like little proper 
cartridges which you know which went bang <laughs> tear gas came out and we looked out the you know where we were looking out the window and suddenly bang and the bloke's you know fallen down on his knees clutching at his at his eyes and viv at that point came in into the hotel and uh i know john stacks went and saw him and said look you know You've got to hide the gun. You've got to get rid of the gun. So um, at that point, Viv supposedly, and I say supposedly because we find out why, hid it in the toilet or something. And then John and myself and Phil and Brian as well, I think, were sitting in, in this room. I was saying, oh, what a twat, you know, etc. Really sort of, kind of slagging Pour, you know, Viv off and say, what a bloody idiot. And suddenly we hear these footsteps across and there was, an, it, there was a, 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 a dividing door between our room and the room next door. We didn't realise that was Viv's room. And <laughs> the door actually came straight off its hinges and fell flat on the ground. <laughs> and Viv appears waving the gun at us. Oh my God. And John Stacks did the the sort of uh, total put that silly gun down. You know it won't do you any good. It was like something out of a <laughs> film, a very cheap film. <laughs> uh, you know, because he went, you bastards, you. Uh, oh, I heard every word. Uh, he was saying all that and <laughs> raving the gun at us. Um, but in the end, I think he probably did the the the. The, the whole thing of sort of handing John the garden crying or whatever. And <laughs> I'm, and I'm surprised that wasn't that wasn't the final straw, really. No, it wasn't the final straw. <laughs> that, was, that was a mere blip. <laughs> <laughs> well. So anyway. <laughs> so by the time the album came out in December of sixty-five, uh Viv was gone and um Skip the aforementioned Skip Allen was uh, became the full-time drummer. Yeah, we did have a brief um, period with Mitch Mitchell as yeah. well. How come that didn't work out? He wore a suit. <laughs> <laughs> he wore a, a kind of ginger tweed suit. <laughs> um, and it, I mean, he was, you know, the funny thing is that he was quite... He was quite stiff, his drumming, compared with with Viv and with Skip. Yeah. Um, and when he went on to Hendrix and everything, it was just like, is this really the same guy? And I I mean, he was good, you know, don't get me wrong. He was, was certainly no slouch of a drummer, but he was very different from Viv, I think. Um, he'd, he'd been playing with Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames, so more of a straight, in-the-pocket R&B yeah, drummer. yeah. Yeah, but maybe. Yeah, maybe you wanted something looser, more dynamic. Yeah, more dynamic gravy. But um, well, yeah, dynamic gravy, right? And to be the the real truth is also is Phil didn't like him. Uh, they just it was the suit. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the pretty things world, discharging a gas gun and threatening the other band members with it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tweed suit. 
No. No. <laughs> Deal breaker. <laughs> absolutely right. <laughs> Let's let's uh, let's discuss the album cover because it's a nice one. And um, Viv said that he was actually passed out on that session. You're all lying on the floor in kind of a circle, and Viv's eyes are closed. He appears to be passed out. Yeah, highly likely. Yeah. I mean, lay him flat, and that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> you, I guess you better all just lay down, and we'll do the photo that way because yeah. <laughs> the drummer can't stand up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, the, there's a flower, the flowery border, like a frame around yes. it. Do yeah. you remember whose idea that was, or who who executed that? I, I think I, it's nice. I think it's very nice. I don't know. I really don't know. Any idea who the picture was by? It's not Deso Hoffman, is there's, it? No, there's no credit. I don't. No, I've never, never been able to find out credit for yeah. the art or anything. Yeah, I have a vague recollection of. Of well, a reasonable recollection actually of doing it, and the idea of uh, you know of, of the heads together like that, which was yeah. a rather cool idea, I must say. Yeah, it, it's a yeah, it'd be lovely to know who did it, and it's obviously not a particularly. I mean, it's not sort of super crisp or anything, is it? <laughs> no, no, it's slightly uh, yeah out of focus. Yeah. But the composition is nice. But the composition is great, yeah. So, and, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe it was the only way you could get the photographer could get us to. <laughs> Might have been the only usable shot. <laughs> yes, possibly. <laughs> and no, I like, I, uh, yeah, the fact that you were I, using this very pretty flowery frame. The pretty things had, you know, their image was more of a, you know, tough, rebellious band, but not yeah. afraid to flirt with this more feminine, you know, graphic. Feminine side, yes. Yeah, I, like, I like that. Uh, that's, yeah. and, you know, it fits with the name of the band, of course, you know, things. I, I actually don't know. I don't know who the designer was at all. Really, absolutely not. Did you, I mean, did, did you get to have approval on these things? Did you get to see it before? It I was believe called? so. I believe so. I know that we definitely, you know, the first album, we definitely got to go, yeah, that's good. We like that. Yeah. Um, but that's more of a, uh, you know, just such a good photograph, isn't it? Whereas the, yeah, forget the picture one, it is really, really good. But in a, like I say, it's not sort of super sharp and it, it's very unexpected. Some, someone was very, very smart in saying, yeah, let's lose this, let's use that one. Yeah, I mean, and maybe that fits with the title because it's kind of a snapshot. You know? Yeah. Am you yeah. Know, slightly amateurish that you might have taken yourselves rather than professional. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Some photographers probably listening to this and weeping. That was my best shot ever. <laughs> <laughs> I spent three hours getting the blur just right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So how do you rate the album now? I assume, obviously, you rate it because I asked you which album you'd like to do, and you said get the picture. So what is it about this album that's special to you? It's, I don't know, it's the time when we did it. I think, you know, apart from, you know, musically, actually, there's a lot of variety on it. And you can sort of tell where we'd been and where we were going. Mm, yeah. You know, you could really sort of see the kind of, 
start of thinking, oh, let's go off in a in a different direction. But also there's the stuff which is, you know, where our roots show. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think it's very important in the sense that it was that point when we were moving and then obviously it's a bit of a haze when you get to emotions i'm not saying i don't like emotions because i, I really do but it's a completely different uh, animal but you almost could imagine sf sorrow after get the picture uh without emotions if you know what i mean because although emotions was kind of stepped towards sf sorrow Yes, you start seeing the changes in in get the picture. Yes, definitely. Yeah, especially what like I said with things like can't stand the pain. Um, yeah, in particular. Yeah, and I, I I guess emotions was another stop along the way, but it was sort of an experiment that maybe didn't quite work in the way everybody in the band wanted it to. But I think it was an out. Uh, you know, where Phil had to stretch himself as far as lyrics mm. in a way that he hadn't done before with yeah. all those descriptive story type songs you yeah know, yeah i think phil was really yeah i mean he, he actually was really coming coming into his own as as a lyricist right uh, on emotions but yeah but uh, uh, and the other thing about the other thing about uh, get the picture it was the band it was it was really you know despite the fact that you know yeah Freddie Freddie and Twinkle on a track on two tracks and you know but it's really very much redolent of the of the band as it was at that time. Yeah, yeah, the the sort of classic original Pretty Things lineup as it were. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it sort of like was the sum of their accomplishments there, like that you you achieved you know everything you could achieve with that lineup possibly at that point. Yeah. And with John Stacks being really on it, I mean, he was so good at that point. Definitely a peak for John, I think. Yeah. Well, I hope he hears this. (laughs) (laughs) I hope he listens. Yeah. Yeah. I really do actually. I don't want to get the The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and hosted by Mike Stacks. That's me. Ugly Things Magazine is available at the very coolest record and bookstores and at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, books and CDs, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate us, leave a review, and spread the word to your friends. We would also appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, psychedelic music, and more. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters, Glenn Gibbs, Charlie Konisaka, Sophia Swartz, Keith Patterson, Dean Curtis, David Biasotti, David Jones, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Ryger, Derek Davidson, 
and Craig Easton. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.